In the fourth book of the Chronicles of Narnia series called Prince Caspian, the fame little mouse character Reepicheep has lost his tail because somebody cut it off in battle. And for mice, the tail represents honor. So Reepicheep has lost his honor and he now stands before the Christ figure, the great lion, Aslan, and he's appealing to have his tail, his honor, restored. Now, Aslan and Reepicheep are talking, and Aslan is attempting to help Reepicheep understand that honor is a condition of the heart more than the appendage. And yet, while they're discussing this matter, Aslan notices that all of Reepicheep's Little mice friends have unsheathed their own swords. And he's inquiring of their intentions. What do you plan on doing with those? And so the second mouse in command, Peepa Keep, I love C.S. Lewis's names, responds to Aslan and he says this, May it please your high majesty, We are all waiting to cut off our tails if our chief mouse must go without his. We will not bear the shame of wearing an honor which is denied to the Most High Mouse. What these little mice characters are displaying is a willing humility to sacrifice their own honor for the honor of someone greater than themselves. In other words, the honor of their leader was more important than their own. And in this allegorical story, C.S. Lewis captures the truth that Jesus taught in John sixteen thirteen when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And Jesus is making this comment to his disciples, and in a very real sense, he is saying, If I humble myself in order to see the kingdom of God inaugurated, you have no right to do any different. As we have learned in this study time in the book of Nehemiah up until this point, the students in Israel had risen above their teacher. In other words, Israel had gotten so caught up in their own honor that they forgot about the honor of the Lord. They forgot their purpose and forsook the honor of God for their own honor. But the tide is now turning Nehemiah has recently arrived with materials and permission from the Persian king to rebuild Jerusalem and restore the honor of God to the city and to his people. And so when the people of Jerusalem hear Nehemiah's vision and they hear his plan and then also all that God has been doing to make provisions, they are prepared to cut off their own tails. Nehemiah tells us that his people strengthened their hands for the good work and then state in unison, as we did a couple of good weeks ago, 
let us rise up and build. And in so doing, God's people are demonstrating a renewed sense to live for the honor of the Lord. To live for the honor of somebody greater than themselves. Church, this captures the main idea for us in our study today. Here it is. God's honor is far more valuable than anything else done for our own honor. And it is worth giving our time, our energy, our affections, and even our lives. This is true. Said another way, the truth and goodness and honor and the beauty of God in dis- on display through the gospel of Christ is worth far more than our petty causes, our personal luxuries, and even our very own lives. The gospel of God's kingdom ruled by Christ and put on display through a unified people who honor Christ as king is worth organizing our lives around, church. We're not here to play games. We're not here to be part of a culture club. We're here to shape our lives for the glory of Christ, for the honor of someone greater than us. True? So in preparation for today's teaching, if you were reading ahead and you read through Nehemiah chapter 3, you might be thinking, how does a guy do a whole sermon about a list of names? Well, trust me, I did. Nehemiah 3 is one of those chapters that many of us have previously skimmed. It's like the first chapter in the book of Chronicles. Unpronounceable name after unpronounceable name. Elisha, Zakura, Hesaniah, Merimoth, Hekaz. Hekaz? Hekaz? Mashulam, Berechiah, Meshezebel. Wait. Where's this going? What are we doing here? But this is actually a really inspiring section. It's a snapshot of family after family working side by side toward an audacious, seemingly unobtainable goal united by a common purpose for the honor of somebody greater than themselves. So here's my hopes for today. First, I want to read a good portion, not all, but a lot of Nehemiah chapter 3. Then, I just want to pull out some general observations, some true things that we can see about the passage as we fly over 30,000 feet, and then there are some principles to apply, okay? So, starting in Nehemiah chapter 1, chapter 3... Verse 1. Then Elishahib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated and set its doors. 
They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananiah. And they next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur the son of Imri built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them Merimoth the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them Meshulham, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to him the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Little side note, there were people that were too good for the work. And so they stood around and criticized and yammered on and on about why the work wasn't worth their time. Jehoiada, the son of Peseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besadoya, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Meliatha, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Herariah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Malachiah, the son of Rechab, ruler in the district of Beth Herakimim. See, these, I'm, some Hebrew guy's going to hear this online and be like, wow. <laughs> that poor man needs an education. Well, you guys are just buzzing along with me, right? <laughs> Verse 15. And Shulam, the son of Kolhosen, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah in the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. Now, because, peop- because they section it off and they tell you, my understanding in my study, there is a section of wall where they know that Nehemiah actually built. It is one of my dreams to go to Jerusalem and put my hands on that wall and know that Nehemiah touched those stones. Wouldn't that be awesome? Verse 20, after Baruch, the son of Zabiah, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Elisha, the high priest. It's interesting that the high priest's home was in a completely another section, but he started at the sheep gate with his brothers. We're going to talk about that in a minute. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired, and another section from the door of the house of Elishabib to the end of the house of Elishabib. And after him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. Down to verse 31. After Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Two and a half miles, all the way around the city, 
Families are working side by side, shoulder to shoulder, to build the honor of the Lord. So here's some general observations about the passage. Elishabib is the high priest and he builds the sheep gate along with his brothers. Verse 1. Nehemiah starts his record of the wall building with the priest constructing the gate of lambs, the sheep gate. It's this gate located near the temple where the lambs would enter the city for Passover. So if we go down to verse 31, the last verse in the chapter, sorry, verse 32, the final builders were goldsmiths and merchants, and they repair the final, final section of the wall between the upper chamber and back to the sheep gate. So again, two and a half miles, it starts with the gate of the lambs and ends with the gate of the lambs. Make no mistake, there's a plain and very clear point in Nehemiah's writing. Everything starts and ends with the Passover lamb. Everything begins and ends with the gate where the Passover sheep were ushered in. So this first general observation is this, everything begins and ends with the Passover lamb. It's a second general observation. The Lord records names of those who serve him. Now, I don't think that any of these people thought that 2,500 years later, we would be reading their family names in a book. Matter of fact, my guess is that they, like most of us would have been, felt like they were doing all of the important things in their life, and they're going to take a break for 52 days to do this side project, and then they are going to get back to the things that are important. But notice this. We know nothing of 98% of any of these people except for the 52 days that they laid their hand to the work of honoring the Lord. And the Lord does not forget names. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 says this, For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. The Lord remembers names. Third, general observation, families are building the walls in congruent unity. In other words, they're not just building a wall somewhere in Jerusalem, somebody over here is in Samaria building another piece. They're building in succession. They have to make them come together with other families. There are rulers, there are governors, there are priests, there are temple servants, There's goldsmiths. There's perfumers. Wonder what that section of the wall smelled like. There's merchants. There's city dwellers. There's sons. And there's daughters. And they are all working as family or community teams, but together 
on the same objective. Now consider this. If my family and I decided to build a section of the wall, a wall in the middle of the desert, you may be impressed by our work ethic. You may be inspired by the amount of work we were able to accomplish. But as a wall section by itself, connected to nothing else, it is good for one thing. A monument to the Basosis. That's it. We could do this amazing structure out in a field by itself. And it is nothing except a monument to people. So hear me. It's not enough that a family is working, being productive, and fruitful. God's kingdom is about families working and being fruitful together with others, including sojourners and exiles, on the same goal, with the same calling, to become one family in the service of God the Father. By the way, clarifying point, this is why we need those among us who are Single. Because you are included in this family of God. It's not about the Harrisons and the Basosas and the Smiths and the Richardsons and, and, and all those people are really great people. It's not about that. It's about us coming together and a willingness to cut off our own tails for the sake of somebody greater. And this is why we need our single people who bring gifts and abilities to our family. And we need you. And so when I'm talking about families, please do not hear, if you're here by yourself, that you are excluded. You are not. But together, we all join to become families. A family. Here's the fourth general observation. God's people have been invited to join in a community. A few months ago, we did a study similar, and we called it a beachhead or an outpost. God's people have been invited to be a community, a beachhead, an outpost of heaven, where we think, speak, love, and live in relationships under God's sovereign rule for His honor as King. And it is God's design to use this called, set apart, He uses the word holy, community of people, exalting Him as King, as the base camp for the evangelism of the nations. You following me? God is using, church, us, and what we're doing together as a base camp, a launching pad for other people to come to know Christ. Do you know why evangelism efforts have failed so profoundly in the last 20 years? Because they've been disconnected from the body of Christ Let me say this 
even stronger. This is not my opinion. Thus saith the Lord. This is His design, not my idea. I'm just the messenger. That's repeated in the New Testament, 1 Peter 1.19. We, we have been a kingdom of people. We are, we are a community of people brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light so that we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us. And by the way, we're seeing this here in Nehemiah again, but this has always been true from Genesis to the book of Revelation. This is God's plan. It is His design. And to neglect this God-centered, God-designed community where everyone has a unique role to fulfill as God has determined and defined to neglect this God-centered community where we have jobs to do that God defines them for us. If we neglect that, it is to pull the cord that begins the unraveling of everything. Every time, every time, men trade God's design for man's design, everything falls apart. That is why communism will never work and social Marxism will always fail because it puts man at the center and it will never, ever last. They may look or appear that they're succeeding, but they will always fail. A few years ago, a column was written in the New York Times, and the author states this, the family is the nucleus of civilization and the basic social unit of society. Aristotle wrote that the family is nature's established association for the supply of mankind's every everyday wants. Research, says this author, clearly shows that the institution of the family is the first form of community and government, the first and best and original Department of Health, Department of Education, and Department of Welfare. And he ends his quote with this, For a civilization to succeed, the family must succeed. The Bible declares this over and over, and history has confirmed it over and over. It is God's design, or it is destruction. It is Christ as king, or it is chaos. There is no in-between unless you're simply sliding in one direction or another. So here's some principles we can apply. The first one is this. For us together as a church family, Christ must be the beginning and the end of everything we do together. This is why if you flip over on your notes, in the upper right-hand corner of our page, you will see our first guiding principle, the supremacy 
of Christ. He must be the first, the beginning, and the end of everything we do together. This is why, by the way, over the past few years, we have been defining and declaring what we believe together through the recitation of creeds and catechisms like we did tonight. Why are we doing that? We're not just utilizing old documents because it's cool and it's kind of coming back in vogue a little bit. It's not why we're doing it. We're doing this because we are clarifying and defining our walls. We are clarifying and defining together. We believe that together. Even as we were reading that, I hope as you're, we're looking at the Lord's prayer together, when you're, in our hearts we're going, yes, that's true. And we're doing that together. So that's why we've been defining over the last couple of years more and more clearly and declaring what we believe and then standing up and doing that together. Why? Because Christ must be the beginning and the end of everything we do. He will be our unifying factor. Study of eschatology, end times, won't unify us. These issues that are on the outskirts, that are kind of third and fourth issues on the outskirts, they won't unify us. Christ must be the beginning and the end of everything that we do together. It's a first principle for us to apply. The second principle for us to apply is this. We should joyfully work together in unity and be thankful for the various parts. We should joyfully work together in unity and be thankful for the various parts. I wrote in my notes, ooh, I'm going to have Jason read Romans 12, 3 through 13. He then texts me about an hour later and says, Rob, in light of what you were teaching today, I really want to read Romans 12, 3 through 13. We're working in unity and thankful for the various parts. Not everybody, by the way, in Jerusalem was a stonemason by trade. Matter of fact, I didn't read one mentioned. Again, perfumers, merchants, priests, goldsmiths, fathers, sons, daughters, nobles, leaders, servants, slave, for 52 days, they were all masons. To do what needs to be done. There were only a few, Nehemiah records, standing around going, I'm just really not called to that. That's not just, you know, I just don't feel the Lord leading me in that direction. Nehemiah's like, uh, hand me the trowel. And move over, skirt, right? <laughs> Each family has the responsibility of a section or a wall or a gate and its doors. And the strength of this work is families working side by side, connecting their work with those next. Work with joy, church, on your section and have a mind to work. Chapter 4, verse 6. And don't compare your section of wall with somebody else's. Don't stand there working on your part. Man, wish I was over there. They got a much better view. 
Don't be the kid in the back seat of an amazing beach vacation, all worked up because you couldn't get a ring pop at Bucky's, right? Some of you have experienced this. You're going on this amazing family vacation, and you got a little one in the back whining because they can't have this. And you're like, are you, are you serious? We're on our way to, and all you can think about is that thing? Well, let's not be too hard on the kids. We adults are involved in this glorious reality of literally being invited to build the kingdom of God. And all some of us can do is stand over in the corner and wring our hands about what we're not able to do. We're over here working on the dung gate. And the Harrisons get to the... They got like Team Fountain Gate on the back of their shirts. Hey kids, don't pick that up. That's not a brick, right? Dad, why do we have to be over? We do it, don't we? Don't compare your section and what you're doing with others. Don't be that kid. Jason also sent me a commentary that he was reading, and he sent it to me today, but I had to include it. This is what the author says. With a great number of different people working on the walls, it was imperative that they all work with the same mind, or the wall would not be uniform or come together and would not be a strong defense. Yet each section was a little different because different people worked on each section. The stones might have been a little bit more peculiar, or maybe the joints were bigger, or maybe they packed it with a little bit more mud. Each section was a little bit different than the rest. But in the same way, the family of God, the work, must be done with a common vision and mindset. The mind of Christ, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 2. When believers work together in one accord, yet with different and distinctive gifts, the work of God gets done in a glorious way. Yeah? So the second principle for us to apply is joyfully work together in unity and be thankful for the various parts. This last section, this last principle that we can apply is a little bit bigger and we're going to camp here for a minute because there's been quite a bit of discussion around this if you've been around our church for a while. If you're a visitor, I really hope you're edified by this. But we have been having some of these conversations. And so again, I'm going to camp here for a little bit. And I'm going to speak to you on behalf of the elders and define and cast some vision for what it is that we are building together. So this third point is this. Together, we are building family ministry teams And remember, that includes singles. Together, we are building family ministry teams as a part of building God's team to build His kingdom. Church, there's two ways we can grow to shepherd the church as we move forward. One of those ways is a very common and practical way. We could begin hiring more staff to do the job of shepherding. It's one way we could do that. 
There's strengths and weaknesses to that. But there's another way that we could train ready-made, already equipped, already positioned, already responsible leaders to do their jobs. We believe, and again I'm speaking on behalf of our leadership team and many of you that we've had conversations with, that the role of the husband and father at work in the home is a small picture of God the Father at work in the world. We are called, all of us, husbands and wives and children, to submit unto Christ as He has submitted Himself unto the Father. A student is not above his master. As Christ submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Son, so we submit. Fathers, husbands, daughters, wives, mothers, sons. What we're talking about here, speaking of God the Father, but also His image as it rolls out into our homes, is called Father Rule, or Patriarchy. And I know this can be a dirty word in these times. But we're not talking about, let me be clear, we are not talking about father authoritarian dominance. It's not what we're talking about. This is the distortion that the world likes to paint, and unfortunately, some Christians have taken on as a banner. Authoritarian dominance. We're not talking about that. But we are talking about loving, sacrificial, father rule, as the Bible defines it and portrays it. Biblically speaking, in God-honoring patriarchy, the husband, the father, is to love, rule, and shepherd in the home just as Christ loves, rules, and shepherds in His church. Ephesians 5, 23-31, and Colossians 3, 19-21. And the best way that we see for us as elders to see the flourishing and the blessing of Proverbs 31 women, and to see the flourishing and the blessing of Ephesians chapter 6, obedient children, is to develop Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3, husbands and fathers. You with me? Look, this is not about the men and the women standing around with their hands in their pockets wondering what to do with themselves. If you've heard us say that, three things. The evil one is lying to you. You want to hear that because you have an agenda. Or three, we've miscommunicated as a leadership team. And I'm going to tell you, we recognize this is tricky and we need to do better in our communication. We realize we want to put out the vision of what we're about, not what we're not about. You with me? So we've got to do a better job at that. We want to do a better job at that. 
But I also will say objectively, we've been off by yards, not miles. Just being straight. Yards, not miles. And if you're saying we're miles, it's because you want it to be miles. But the best way for us to see the flourishing and the blessing of Proverbs 31 women, and if you know what that looks like, these are strong, resourceful ladies. And they can't flourish under wimpy men. They can't. And so the best way to see a flourishing of Proverbs 31 women and Ephesians 6 children is Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. Husbands and fathers. Let me help you with what that practically means after I get a drink here. Ready? As a leadership team, we've heard several comments regarding discussions that have been had. I'm still, my cold is, I'm struggling to get my breath a little bit. Give me a second. And I'm a little excited, if you can't tell, okay? But we've, we've heard some several comments regarding discussions that have been had where one person brings up the topic of a women's Bible study or even previous of a teen uh, study or gathering. And another person will say, oh, the elders won't let that happen. Okay, let me be very clear about this. Not true. It's not true. That's a lie. And it's not true. Because it's happening already, and it has happened in the past. Okay, and it's flourishing in the present. However, let me be clear about this. We believe it is not our jobs as elders to initiate, to initiate, to organize, to facilitate, to provide a teacher for a women's Bible study. So if you hear something negative, that's it. We just don't feel like that's our job. It's not our job to do the work of the ministry, but our job to equip the church for the work of the ministry. So, we are, here's what we are striving to the purpose of. That if a woman in our church finds herself or others in need of teaching or fellowship or encouragement outside the normal teaching of the church and outside her home, and or she could use input from other godly women, she should approach her husband about her need and her desire. And then her husband should help lead her and lovingly discern with her ways for her to pursue her growth in Christ. Guys, this is a much better job than me and Jason doing that. For your wives. You with me? That's your job, husbands. It's your privilege. It's your responsibility. And you are going to do it far better than we will. And when you do it, you'll pick up far more respect than if we're doing it for you. Somebody say that's true. The husband then could take several different routes. He could ramp up the teaching in their own marriage after discussion. Or 
in their home with their children. You're right. I see that. We need to ramp this up. Or he could encourage her and help her find an older woman to meet with. Or a couple other women to meet with. There's a myriad of other paths. And if that couple needs help discerning a direction or decide that they want to facilitate a study or want to include other women in the church, then we are more than happy to help you as a ministry team to make that happen. Clear? Is that clear? We are all about that happening. All about that happening. We've got that happening all over right now. My mom has little girls coming to her house every Thursday night when my son has little guys coming and they're pouring into them. We didn't start that. The elders didn't do that. Who did? The church. Emma just had a baby. For the first week and a half, she had ladies every morning, people at 7 o'clock taking her other children so her and the new baby could sleep in, cleaning dishes, taking care of little ones, getting them up, getting them moving. What would you have done, parents? Me and Mary were like, whoa, that's awesome. Guess what? The elders didn't do that. You know who did? You did it. You with me? You following me? I'm hoping you're excited about this. Okay? We are not no people. But we really believe, we passionately believe, the best way to go about this is to get the men to do their jobs. Quick story. My sister was telling me this. I was down in North Carolina. Her church works with uh, an abortion ministry. A dad brings a daughter in to the abortion clinic and drops her off for an abortion. He comes to pick her up after. She's talking with some of the church people who are now helping her because she's devastated and they're offering her counseling. And the dad angrily interrupts and he says, my daughter doesn't need any counseling from the church. I blame the church for not teaching my daughter abstinence. Now, we'll roll our eyes and scoff at a man so foolish to say such a thing. And yet at the same time, we will hire a children's ministry pastor to care for the needs of the children in the church. We'll hire a junior high youth pastor to care for the needs of the junior high kids in the church. We'll hire a senior high youth pastor. We'll hire a young adults pastor. We'll hire every other person. And guess what the dads do? You're not teaching my kids. We have created a culture where the men are loosed of their responsibility and then we act like they're idiots for blaming it on the church. Shame on us. It is our job, and we see the best flourishing and blessing of women, men, and children in our church by supporting the design that God has already put in place. This is a good and a glorious work, and I speak on behalf of the elders, Nehemiah 6.3, we will not come down from it. We know it's countercultural. We know we have to be careful. We know we want our language to be enthusiastic and saying, this is where we're going. Not, oh, that's out of bounds. That's out of bounds. That's out of bounds. Don't do that. We don't want to do that. This is where we're going. 
This is what we're doing. Join us. Come follow us. We think this is the best way to go about us, to go about it. We know we could be misunderstood, but we know it's worth it, and we're seeing the fruit of it. And we realize because it's so countercultural, we are going to face opposition. The same thing Nehemiah faces in next week. We're going to see that. And we're going to see this opposition to this work because, hear me, Satan, the evil one, hates husband and father rule and he hates submission. The evil one hates husband, father rule. He hates it in heaven. He hates it on earth. He hates God honoring submission. One author states it this way. By sowing division between both God and man and man and woman, Satan undermines the ordering principle of the cosmos, the household. It's the same thing that the New York Times author said. This guy's just a believer. Satan wars against the patriarchy of heaven by warring against the patriarchy on earth. Case in point to what I am saying, do not go see it, but the the recent Barbie movie. It's supposedly a movie for kids. I've only listened to parts of it. The language is nothing to do with children. It's indoctrination. It really is. She uses the word patriarchy. How many kids understand that word? It's not about they're indoctrinating children. You should see the first 45 seconds of the movie. It's horrible. Little girls smashing their baby dolls' heads in an act of freedom. I'm telling you, this is not a kid's movie. It's a war against father rule in heaven and on earth. And it is straight up evil. And it's being crammed. No. It's being allowed to flow down the hearts of our children by parents. Some may say, Rob, you're a husband and a father of a pastor. Of course you would say that. I'll consider this. A few days ago, a well-known Oscar-nominated German filmmaker, Werner, Werner Herzog, came on to Piers Morgan uncensored. By the way, if you are going to watch anything, I would encourage you to watch Jonathan Kahn's perspective on the Barbie movie. That I know of, Werner Herzog is not a believer, but he was asked onto the segment to weigh in on some of this year's Oscar nominations, having been one as a director. And he was asked if he had seen the Barbie movie. And his response was this, Barbie, I managed to see the first half an hour. I wanted to watch it because I was curious. For the price of a movie ticket, as an audience, you can witness sheer hell as it gets up close. In our efforts to build family ministry teams, we will face opposition. Church, are we ready to cut off our tails for the honor 
of God. It's worth it. I want to end positively, okay, with a few quotes that resonate with us as a leadership team. This is where we're passionate about going. This is written by a guy named Richard Baxter. It's a book from a book called The Reformed Pastor. And he was in efforts to help pastors and elders. It was written in 1655. He says this, We must give special attention to the households under our care to see that they are well managed and that each family member is fulfilling their God-given role. If you're praying for us as a leadership team, pray that. It's good for us. It's really good for you. We must give special attention to the households under our care to see that they are well managed and that each family member is fulfilling their God-given role. The life of religion and the welfare and glory of both church and country greatly depend on well-ordered families. If we allow this to be neglected, we will ruin everything. How can we reform our congregation if we must do everything ourselves while the heads of households neglect what is required of them? We must work together. If you desire to see your people happy and following the Lord, and we do. Bob, Jason, you should say true. Ian, brother, chime in from Florida with a true. If you desire to see your people happy and following the Lord, do everything you can to advance religion in the family. Get the heads of families to do their duty, and they will not only spare you much work, but will further the success of your labors. You are not likely to see any general reformation in your church until you gain reformation in the family. Father in heaven, reform all of us, and may it start in our hearts and homes. Christ must be the beginning and the end of everything we do together. Joyfully work together in unity and be thankful for the various parts. Together, we are building family ministry teams as part of God's team to build His kingdom. The gospel of God's kingdom ruled by Christ and put on display through a unified people who honor Christ as King is worth organizing our lives around. And to that end, Father, King Jesus, Holy Spirit, fill us with the power to see this work completed in us. And Lord, help me and all the husbands and wives and children in the application of this message, your truth, into our hearts and lives this week. We need you. for your glory and our joy. Amen.